It's been a couple of weeks, but we are going to come back once again to our series through the book of Revelation as we're slowly working our way through this final letter that we have in, in our New Testament. We're positioned in our study at this point near the end of the tribulation period. Uh, that seven years of divine judgment that God is going to pour out at the end of human history here. We're after the seven bold judgments have been rapidly poured out. These were the, the third of the three sets of judgments. The seal judgments came, and, and when the seventh seal was opened, that revealed seven trumpet judgments. Those trumpets have sounded, and the seventh trumpet revealed seven bold judgments, and now the seven bold judgments were poured out. Essentially, that brings us to the end of the, the seven-year period of tribulation. We know from much of, of of um, scripture that the end will come when Christ returns. So the tribulation culminates with the return of Christ. From, from the flow of time perspective, that's the next event to occur. And we expect that to come after the cataclysmic destruction that, that we saw in the seventh bowl. Um, the sixth bowl of Revelation 16, where the seven bowls were, were laid out in Revelation 16, the, the sixth bowl prepared the way for armies of the earth to all gather for the final battle when they'll face off against Christ at the battle of Armageddon. The seventh bowl that followed brought major destruction, massive amounts of destruction, destruction such as what the world has never seen before. Since it's been a while, uh, look, if you will, at, at verse 17 of, of chapter 16. The seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nation fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because his plague was extremely severe. This is that final massive judgment that, that comes with the seventh bowl. The last time we were in our series, we looked at chapter 17. Chapter 17 began a two-chapter interlude that John was given that further explains the, the part of verse 19 I just read, that Babylon the Great was remembered before God to, to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. The, the question that comes to mind is, why was Babylon remembered this way? We ultimately know that Babylon was the capital of the Antichrist during his worldwide empire during the, this period of time. Why did this city deserve the fierce wrath of God? What, what makes it worthy of the, the special punishment that these final judgments falling upon the earth would, would, point, would, would bring a special way upon this city? Those are the questions that chapter 17 and 18 are answering. Why is God remembering this city in a unique way when he's bringing cataclysmic judgment upon all the earth? Chapter 17 that we looked at last time focused on religion. 
We, we saw in that chapter that throughout history there, there's been a link between major empires that dominated the world and false religion. These, these two things have been linked time and time again. The false religion opposed God and those who dominate the world in major empires, they're, they're making use of false religion. The, the false religion in chapter 17 was depicted as a harlot. And history was sketched out very briefly as, as empires used religion to influence people, while, while at the same time false religion used empires to provide a, a framework within which it could flourish. During, during the first half of the tribulation, the, the Antichrist uses a, a worldwide ecumenical religion to, to rise up and dominate the, the world, and that's all centered in Babylon, his capital. Then we saw in that chapter at the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist destroys the false religion that he's used, and then he sets himself up as the only God to be worshipped. God with a small g, of course. And he's the only one that can be worshipped. He, he won't share worship with any other form. It's because of the great persecution of the saints that the God brings punishment upon this, this city of Babylon because that persecution originates then and centers in Babylon during the tribulation period, this, this bastion of, of the Antichrist power. For, for that reason, its, it's focus uh, in worldwide religious events, we, we saw for that reason Babylon is worthy of special judgment. As we turn to chapter 18 this evening, we'll, we'll see there's also a secular component that plays into the rightness of the judgment that God pours out. There's the religious component where Babylon became the center of this religion that ultimately is led by the Antichrist, persecutes all true believers. It deserves judgment for that, but there's a secular component that, that plays into the judgment that fell as part of the seventh bowl. So let's begin working our way through chapter 18 this evening. In the first eight verses, we have the, the fall of Babylon itself. And rather than treat all the eight verses in one pass, I'm going to break into three different subsections. Uh, the section that, that begins with the first three verses is the angelic announcement of the fall of Babylon. The angelic announcement. Look at, at chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality." The announcement here is brought by a different angel than began the interlude report back in, in verse 1 of chapter 17. I, you probably don't remember that, but we had an angel that poured out the seventh bowl, began the, the report there in chapter 17. This is a different angel. John is joined by another angel, and John reports that this angel has great authority, that this angel has glory that delights the whole earth. Because of the magnitude of the glory of this angel, there are some scholars that, that have tried to argue that this is Christ himself. But, but there's no justification for that idea. Christ is never referred to as an angel. 
what we have here is a, another mighty angel, and one that's sent by God as a messenger to John with, with a message. And the message is, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Of course, since John is about to receive information about why Babylon deserves judgment, the, the destruction hasn't quite occurred now in this interlude time frame. He's somewhat moving back in time from a, a point to a point prior to, to the actual destruction. Interludes have that fluid time element, so we, we kind of understand that. But, but he's being told that it's fallen, and, and then here's why. The double repetition of that word fallen, it makes it certain. Babylon is going to be destroyed by God, completely destroyed. And verse 3 clues us into the fact that, that we're looking at Babylon's guilt from a different angle. We, we just heard from the first angel about the religious history that, that's connected to the city. Now we're looking at it from a different angle. Where the focus is on economic and commercial connections that, that the city has with the rest of the world. There's, there's nations and kings and merchants that have all united in an ungodly union with, with this city in some fashion. And through their association with the city, they've become rich. But their, their richness has been through ungodly and, and immoral manners. It, through and through, it's ungodly. It's It's immoral. Immediately following the, the angelic announcement, John hears another voice. And this voice communicates what I'm calling the escape invitation. The escape invitation. Look at verse 4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So most likely the voice that John hears is another angel. This angel is speaking on behalf of God from heaven. That, that's most likely who we're hearing, but we can't say for sure. All we, we know is that John hears a voice calling out to God's people in the city of Babylon from heaven, calling for them to come out of Babylon, come out before the judgment strikes. The, the call is actually given in the form of, of a command, a, a command that expresses urgent action come out. There, there's not much time left. The, the time is very, very short. And it's not, there's not much time left because the, the voice says the sins have piled up to heaven. In other words, they have, they're completely stacked up. God will no longer tolerate the city's existence. We also are told that this coming judgment is not the only danger that God's people face in the city. That the people of God are encouraged to leave the city so that they will not participate in her sins. For I think it's surprising that, that we find people of God still in the city of Babylon at this stage of, of events. Where we're clearly in the final stage of the tribulation here. These are clearly God's people because the voice from heaven calls them my people. We have people of, of God remaining in Babylon to the end of the tribulation. I find that surprising because they have been hunted by the forces of the Antichrist for several years now at this point. Yet somehow they're hiding in his very own capital. I, I find that amazing. At the same time, they're warned here that there's a risk of yielding to the temptation of taking the easy way out, or at least what would seem like the easy way out, 
by joining him. They've been hunted for years. They've been hiding underground in, in his capital city somehow for years. And there's the risk of giving in to the temptation of just joining in with him to, to get out from under that risk. They, they risk falling under his delusion. They, they risk falling for a lingering fondness for the greatness of the city that they're in. Uh, it makes me immediately think of Lot's wife who, who fell because she still had a lingering fondness for, for Sodom. Even as she was escaping, she looked back. She had this fondness for that city. Well, here these saints are told to get out because destruction, destruction is coming, but they're also told to escape before they participate in her sins and, and, and deserve to receive her judgments. Moving on, in, in verses 6 through 8, we have a record of the complete judgment, the judgment itself. Pay her back even as she has been paid. And give back to her double according to her deeds in the cup which she has mixed. Mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she has gloried herself and live, live sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. Either as the heavenly voice continues speaking or the first angel of the chapter resumes, John continues to hear this, this general call for, for Babylon to, to receive her due judgment. The, the, the phrase in verse 6, give back her double, that's an idiom. That, that means to give to her an exact proportion that she deserves. It's not called to give her back twice as much as what she's distributed in evil deeds. The idiom means to the exact same measure that she has, has doled out, give to her. Verse 7 re repeats the idea by calling for her to receive the same degree of torment and mourning that, that she has dealt out. Give her exactly what she deserves. Babylon's fundamental problem is, is that the city, in other words, the, the residents of the city, not the... the the structures, but the, the residents of the city from the Antichrist on down, these residents thought they were untouchable. As they, they focused on self-glorification and luxurious pleasure, they, they believed that they could ensure for themselves, through their, their own might, a, a condition that they will never, ever suffer. They, they dealt out suffering. They, they sought the, the saints to make them suffer. They, they were plenty ready to let other people suffer under the judgments of God. They dealt out suffering, but they did not receive suffering. In their mind, they were immune from suffering. Well, they will learn otherwise in a very rapid fashion when God destroys the city. One day in verse 8 means swiftly and abruptly. There, there will be no further warning. Suddenly, fire will, will descend on the city much as it did on Sodom and Gomorrah, and the city will no longer be in existence. As I said a few weeks ago, it's likely that is the destruction of the city that actually precipitates the battle of Armageddon. The Antichrist knows that, that God is the one who destroys his capital city. He also knows that, that Jesus is about to return. In, in anger then, he marshals his, this global army in an attempt to retaliate for the destruction of his capital. 
We're not told how the Antichrist escapes the destruction of Babylon, but he does. He is there and he marshals his forces to, to try to, to fight Christ as he returns in, in retaliation. Most likely that's what precipitates the gathering of the armies in the, the battle itself. This is how the Antichrist will respond to the destruction of Babylon, but there will be others that respond as well. And that's where we move next in the chapter. We have the responses over Babylon, over its destruction. In verses 9 through 20, we we see laments from three groups of people who who mourn the the destruction of the great city of the Antichrist. It's interesting that as the angel, who I believe is most likely the one who continues to show all this to John, that strong angel that came to him and, and met with him, as the angel goes through these groups, it's interesting that the angel shifts from a future tense with the first group to a present tense with the second group to a past tense with the third group. That, that's just another way of communicating to us through language that these judgments are certain. We can speak of them as coming, as present, or as even already occurred. The first group we find in verses 9 to 10. There we have the lament of kings. Verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her, that would be with Babylon, will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city of Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. If we think here for for just a moment uh, about the sorrow that the kings express through this double woe, it's over their sudden loss of power. That's that's what they're mourning. Woe, woe, the great city of Babylon, the strong city. They they miss the power that she represents. These are kings that have allied themselves with the Antichrist. Their, Their power is directly derived from his power. And now his capital is suddenly in flames. Of course, I I find it almost humorous that it's carefully noted that they keep their distance as they lament her destruction. They're they're not going to risk getting caught up in a second round of of destruction falling from God on on this region. They stay away at distance, but they mourn that, that their power center has been destroyed. One thing to note before we move on is this. The simple fact that the kings are mourning this destruction of the city demonstrates that the burning of Babylon is not the ultimate end of history. There's still something left because these kings are still on the earth. What's left is that final battle that comes. Of course, after the battle, we'll have the millennial kingdom as well. But from this point, the final battle comes sometime after the destruction of Babylon. The Antichrist, as I said, is not killed when his capital is destroyed. Somehow he escapes. Neither is he completely rendered powerless. He's he's capable of marshalling the the army that's revealed in the next chapter to to wage war against Christ when he returns. But the kings lament the fact that the center of their power structure has been destroyed. The, The kings are only the first group to lament the destruction of Babylon. Next comes the lament merchants. Picking up in verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. 
cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and, the cargo, and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit you long for has gone from you, and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning and saying, Woe, woe, the great city. She who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearl, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. Much like, you notice I stopped there in the middle of the verse. This is one of those places where the verse division just doesn't make sense. Uh, verse 17, because we switched to a new group in the middle of the, the verse. But, but we have the lament of the merchants. And by far, this is the, the longest of the three laments, this group. I'm sure as you detected, as I read, the, the primary regret of the merchant is over the destruction of the city where in the sense that they lost a primary market for their goods. They had all these things that they sold in Babylon, and now they can't anymore. Babylon no longer exists. The, the kings were concerned about the, the strength that they derived from the city. The merchants, by contrast, they're, they're concerned about the wealth that the city produced. Money is their god. And the loss of Babylon equates to a loss of major amounts of profits for them. The, the list that I read through in verses 12 and 13 is quite amazing. It, it contains 28 or 29, 28 or 29 items. It, it, it is possibly the longest list anywhere in, in ancient literature. It, the, the list has a lot of well-known luxury items, but it culminates in the final item, the, the item of human slaves. To the merchants, people were just another luxury item that, that could be sold, another commodity that they could sell for profit. The, the reason I said that there's 28 or 29 items is it's likely that the final two items should be translated as slaves, even human souls, not as, as two separate items that really they're emphasizing as the culmination of this list that these merchants had absolute contempt for human life. All they cared about was money. And now they mourn because their best market is destroyed. Like the kings, though, they, they too keep their distance. They're not going to get too close. They, they bemoan their losses, but they steer clear of, of getting caught up in, in collateral damage. And they also attempt to steer clear of, of getting um, caught by anything that will come upon them and, and hinder their profit further. So they, they, they stand shocked at the speed and the grandeur that the city was wiped out as they, they mourn the fact that their money is disappearing. They, they say in an hour. And the, the kings, or earlier it was mentioned in a day, now it's in an hour, these expressions of shortness. In an hour, all the splendor and opulence was wiped away and all that's left behind of this great grand city is ruins. Ruins that continue to smoke. After the merchants share their lament, John hears a third group. 
We have the lament of sailors. If we pick up right in the middle of, of verse 17, we have the lament of sailors. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor, as many as make their living by the sea, stood at a distance. And were crying out if they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning and saying, Woe, woe the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. Very much like the merchants, the the sailors' um, chief lament is over the loss of wealth. Babylon's destruction means that they have lost a place where they can become rich. They, they, lost, they, they mourn the, the spending power that Babylon represented that made rich those who could make use of her port. But these two keep their distance. If they mourn, they, they keep their distance from the sudden destruction of the city. Now, if we think about it for just a moment, lament is only one possible response to the destruction. But there's also another response, and we see that in verse 20 with the response of the joy of heaven. The joy of heaven. In contrast to the previous three groups, the the faithful rejoice over the very same event. Look at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Both heaven and saints are, are called to rejoice. It's interesting that that the same verb is used for rejoice as was used back in chapter 11, verse 10. In chapter 11, verse 10, this this verb described the joy that the wicked had when when the two witnesses were killed by the Antichrist at the midpoint of tribulation. Remember those two witnesses that had been a a thorn in the neck to the people of the earth, at least from the way they saw it at the first half of the tribulation, because these two witnesses were announcing God's judgments, and then God's judgments were falling. So in their minds, these witnesses were the cause, and when the Antichrist was able to kill them, the world rejoiced. Well, now that same word is used, but the rejoicing is coming from heaven. The wicked rejoiced over the death of the righteous servants of God, and now the servants of God in heaven rejoice over the righteous judgment that God has pronounced on the city that became the center of the Antichrist's wickedness. The blood of the two witnesses, as well as countless other tribulation martyrs, has finally been avenged. That's a cause for heaven to rejoice. So having seen the laments of the, the previous groups, and when the city and, and through that their laments, we see how the city became the, the center of civil and commercial world with its associated wickedness. Having seen all that, John is now ready to receive one final vision in this interlude of why the city deserved destruction. Look at the destruction of Babylon again in verse 21. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on the earth. 
So we have a third angel now, a, a strong angel, who, who participates in the revelation that, that John receives in this chapter. It, once more, that revelation predicts the, the judgment that, that will fall on Babylon. The, the angel uses this symbolic act. He has this massive stone that, that he throws into the sea, and, and by doing that indicates both the swiftness and the magnitude of, of the judgment that will come. The, the judgment will be so complete that, that the city will be marked by the absence of, of things rather than the presence of things. It will be the, ap, the absence of all normal signs of life. There, there will not be any music or trades or industry. There won't be any sources of light. There, there won't even be anything like marriage festivities there ever again. The, the city is totally and completely dead. Destroyed because of its great association with, with all that was wicked. Three specific wicked things are called out. The, that's the self-exalting merchants that the city produced. The, the lead it, the city took in deceiving the other nations of the earth. And then last, but, but certainly not least, the city deserved judgment because of the blood guilt it had for the role it played in slaying the faithful prophets and saints throughout the earth. This is a guilty, guilty place. As one commentator expressed it, the, the guilt for the worldwide slaughter rests on the shoulders of Babylon. Well, God cannot allow such guilt to stand. God remembered Babylon, and as a result of remembering it, God destroys it as part of the seventh bowl. Babylon was destroyed because God's righteous judgment fell. This chapter here that we've looked at briefly this evening, it shows us that the reasons that the city of Babylon had to fall to God's judgment. How this is right, what God has done, why this was necessary. In chapter 17, there was the religious component, but there's also the secular component that we see. Babylon, the city, the Antichrist capital, it had a leading role in using power and wealth to entice the nations of the earth to rebel against God and to slay the people of God. Now, as I've said many times, it's hard to, to find immediate applications for us in these future visions. By, by this point in history, the church is not here. We will not be here. We will not face the, the times represented in these chapters of Revelation that, that deal with the tribulation. Yet John has warned us in, in the first epistle that he wrote that the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the world. The ultimate Antichrist, this person is not on, on the stage yet, but the spirit that, that is empowering him, that moves him, the, the, the goal of deceiving people away from God, that is already at work in the world. It's already seeking to deceive saints if possible. And because of that connection, I believe there, there is an application that, that we can extract from this chapter for us. Well, I want us to think about the specific warning that was given to the living saints in, in verses 4 and 5. A voice from heaven had to urgently urge believers from Babylon to flee before they succumbed to the enticements and, and reaped her punishments. These are believers that... We're seeing God's judgments being poured out for years. These were, were believers that, that saw the wickedness directly before them. They were at the heart of wickedness, and yet they had to be warned so they, they would not succumb to the enticement 
that the Antichrist moves. I, I fear that we live in a world in which the spirit of the Antichrist is using very similar enticements to attract believers away from God. The, the enticements of power and riches. One of the greatest dangers that, that we face is the enticement of wealth. The, the principle that I think we can extract from, from this chapter of Revelation is that we must be wary of the destructive attraction of wealth. We live in a rich, rich country. We are rich, rich people. And that can distract us. We must remain wary of the destructive attraction of wealth. Tonight, I'm going to do something different to, to help us make this application. What I'm going to do is play a song that, that communicates this danger clearly. The, the song uses the historical failures of, of Israel, where Israel succumbed as a nation to the destructive lure of wealth. We've seen that same point in this chapter. Satan keeps using the, the same tricks to try to trip us up. It, he wants to destroy us, and, and wealth is one of his tools that he pulls out of his toolbox on a regular basis. So as, as we listen to a song here this evening, listen to the words carefully and consider the words of this song. Prosperity so easily distracts 
distract him from devotion, from devotion to you. Cautiously walk in this land of prosperity, my mind and my heart. Let me guard so attentively, for no human soul can possess double loyalty. I live for God, or I live for money. Let me thank you, Lord, for every blessing. Let me loosely hold to every possession. Let me purpose in my soul. But my one and only passion is to know you, to love you, to thank you. I want to thank the one from whom all blessings flow. I want to love you. I want to love the one to whom my love I owe. I want to know you. I want to know the one who is the giver of all. Let not prosperity so easily distract me from devotion, from devotion, from devotion, devotion. must remain wary of the destructive attraction of wealth. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would indeed help us to be wary people. May we not succumb to the lures of wealth. We see the warning here of saints even at the end of days in the midst of tribulation and extreme persecution being susceptible then, Father, we cannot help but realize we too are susceptible to, to falling to the allurement of ease and prosperity. I pray that you would help us to guard ourselves so that we would indeed be men and women who are devoted to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.